If you could have a conversation with anyone in history, what would you ask them? Hello, General Washington. Good day, Miss Tubman. I had to know, so I decided let's give them a call. Welcome, Welcome to the, the Calling, Calling History, history Podcast. Podcast. I'm Tony Dean, and today we'll be calling history to speak with Benedict Arnold. He'll be answering our call on August 12, 1800, at the age of 59, less than a year before his death and roughly 20 years after being labeled a traitor. There are often two sides to a story, but it's hard to imagine seeing Benedict Arnold's side after making an agreement with the British to weaken the American defenses at West Point and then provide detailed drawings of the facility. But before the invasion took place, the plans were discovered and Arnold fled prosecution. The agreement to give up West Point included a large sum of money to be paid. And yet, when the question was asked of him less than 20 minutes into this call, are you a traitor? His answer was no. How is this possible? Well, believe it or not, by the end of this call, you'll probably see him as a traitor still. But you'll also understand how somebody could get pushed over the edge to make this kind of decision. Benedict is a complex man that didn't want revolution. He had no intention of dishonoring himself or abandoning his country, and yet somehow all of that happened anyhow. You are going to be surprised. Ladies and gentlemen, fellow history lovers and sailors everywhere, I give you Benedict Arnold. Hello, General Arnold? Yes, sir. Who is speaking? My, my name is Tony Dean. It is an incredible honor to speak with you, sir. I am calling you from the future in the 21st century, and the device that you're holding in your hand is called a smartphone. It allows us to talk as if we were standing in the same room, and it also allows me to record this conversation that we're going to have so that people around the world can hear it, which I think is very important because, sir, I'm not sure that you have received the credit that you were due during your military career. And it doesn't appear to me that the people of this time are hearing or listening to your side of your story. And so I was hoping I could ask you a few questions, but before I do, I understand this is a very strange introduction. Can I answer any questions that you may have first? No, uh, I, I do find it strange, but there's nothing unusual about strange in my life. I think that's a fair assessment. You've definitely had some, some different situations in your life, that's for sure. Well, I guess the first question that I'd like to ask, and I guess I'd like to get right to it, I mean, obviously, in our time that people know you must, most about is that you switched sides in the Revolutionary War. And to be quite honest with you, as I've spent a lot of time learning your history, I'm amazed by, you had to be extraordinary on the battlefield, because I don't know if there's ever been a time where there has been a person like yourself who's actually been a general in two different armies in the exact same war. Is that correct? Were you a general in both armies? Yes, sir, I was. There were many reasons for going from one to the other. Well, I'd love I to would... hear more. Oh, very good, sir. I don't want to bore you. It's, it's, uh, you have to understand that the time of the American uh, colonies having their revolution, my intention was to, of course, like the other Englishmen, was to try to clarify the wrongs that the King of England, King George III and Lord North at the Parliament, would to correct, such as taxes and, and uh, quartering acts and those other things. And my sole intention was to provide a military leader from my regular Connecticut militia state troops to try to enforce the people's will of not being forced to do things that they are being forced to do. And therefore, uh, when you speak about the next steps of trying to become independent of our, our mother our country, England, that was not quite what, what my goals were. So your, your goals initially were basically, from what it sounds like, is your primary goal was just to get control of, of what you felt was unfair taxation. Is that correct? Well, it was more than unfair taxation. It was what the Parliament uh, and King George, His Majesty King George at the time, he was, well, how she said it in your terminology, he, he wasn't using good judgment. And he 
forced upon the people of the 13 colonies, such as Connecticut, the colony Connecticut which I was born. It turned out that, that they forced more upon the Bay State, Massachusetts, and the rest of the colonies into submission. And what had happened was that we, and as myself, towards the beginning of the war, years before, we were trying to get people such as the great Benjamin Franklin and, and others to help slow down this aggressiveness of the king and his majesty. And it just, for some reason, they wasn't getting, it was going to deaf ears. And so myself, as a military man, I wasn't always a military. I was actually a sailor. My father and I had a great shipping company out of Norwich, Connecticut. And my father had a problem with um, drinking issues, and I many times had to take him out of the Great Leffingwell Inn, which is down in Norwich, and um, he, you know, wasted away a lot of the money that we had made. We were very comfortable at the time before the war. That's another issue that people brought up about later on. But I, my issue was I wanted very much to help our colony to survive the uh, king's aggressions, if you wish to call them. And we decided that early on, I will tell you the first, the first step that I took to try to reassure the colony that we were going to try to make things right. doesn't sound like the king was too interested in hearing your side of the story, though. Didn't want to hear anybody's side of the story, actually. I guess, I suppose, like, the king is the king. You know, in our history, you don't hear a lot about the king calling people and, and trying to see what their opinion is. Correct, sir. George was, quite, was not well himself, and I, I believe that a lot of his rationale had a lot to do with how the War of Independence was established. How so? Well, there is facts that His Majesty, the King George III, was exactly, we have to use a proper word here, um, he wasn't in his, in his right mind. Uh, maybe it might be called a form of insanity. And he did not actually, Lord North was actually, and Lord Germain were actually running the parliament, uh, and the king was really not quite notified of a lot of things that took place previous to the war. In fact, they didn't want him to be because they felt that he didn't need to know that they could run this whole thing by themselves. So the... Wow, the, I, didn't, I didn't know that. Lord North and Lord Germain before even King George was kicked. So everyone blamed the King George because, you see, you've got to understand, sir, that... Everybody at that time, we were Englishmen, everybody, everybody. They weren't Amer we were uh, English-Americans, we were colonists. Uh, we didn't want to have a war with our mother country, uh, England. Uh, we did not want to, uh, all we wanted to do is, I should put it, right the wrongs. That's it. And then we were willing to go back into the fold of our His Majesty the King. It's interesting that you say that, because at that time, I guess I wouldn't have thought, you know, and now we think of Americans as just Americans. But at that time, the Americans would have thought of themselves as British American or American British citizens. They would have, the thought of revolution, it, it, doesn't, it sounds like you're saying it wasn't even a thing, that they weren't thinking we're going to revolt because we're part of this country. Is that correct? You're absolutely correct, sir. There was, there was um, many, and people always made it look like the colonists, as they called us, or the rabble, the Yankee rabble were the, uh, the instigators, and quite frankly, sir, that's not always there. There were a few, such as, you know, Sam Adams was, uh, or John Adams, you know, and you had Paul Revere, and you had, you know, John Hancock, you know, li liberty or death kind of thing. Yes, those were some of the fanatical ones, but the majority of my good old Dr. Franklin um, himself, uh, John Morrissey from New York, Thomas Jefferson at first didn't really want to do it, James Monroe didn't want to do it, became future presidents of the United States. It was, it was this thing, you've got to understand, it's kind of like, well, I've heard that some countries, they like to rebel for independence, like the uh, 13 colonies did. What happened is, is it, the, the, the colonists were very comfortable. They didn't want to leave King George. They just wanted King George and the parliament to understand that, hey, the, we have made the colonies. We are going to do what we have to do, but... You, you can't tell us what to do. We made this country from, from the, the wilderness, the frontier. And you come out here and you start telling us what we do. You start quartering soldiers in our house, the colonist's house, without permission, without payment. Then you 
you consist on and start putting debtors in prison for something that they didn't owe just because somebody said so. If you add it all up, the all they wanted to do, and the best way so to make it is that I believe that we just wanted to wrong, right the wrongs. That's it. That's why we can... It took six months to a year to correspond back and forth by uh, ship and to the courts and her, His Majesty King George. And by the time we had already gotten an answer back, it was like they wanted more information or, wait a minute, we don't know about that. Send us more. And by then, things have already gotten out of control. Insurrection started, Boston Tea Party, 1773. In 1770, you had the Boston Massacre which is basically another story for another day. But you've got to understand there were both sides were, were wrong on, on so many different fronts on this, I have to say. When you were saying that you were trying to right the wrongs, I guess I've just never looked at it like that because as things were not going the way they're supposed to, you definitely were not in full rebellion, it sounds like. But what were the wrong, what were the, if there hadn't been a six-month time in between passing messages back and forth, what are the wrongs that needed to be righted? What if uh, Lord North and Lord Germain had told, uh, was it, it was George III, I think you said, if they had King told George him, the, look, yes, King George III, if they had told him, go fix these things, and then these people just be British Americans again, what, what, would, what needed to be fixed? One of the things was Lord Germain and Lord North didn't really care what the colonists wanted. They wanted what they want. Right. When you're aristocratic, the low-life persons, like the colonists, would they don't think we were worth of speaking or listening to. Or as we used to say in my day, um, children should be seen and not heard. That's kind <laughs> of how it was. The and colonists was, were the children. Correct, correct. And what could have been corrected were such as taxation with representation, which was not at the time, the quartering acts, which put soldiers in people's homes in Boston without their permission or not even being paid and being told, oh, you have to quarter this soldier. You have to provide him food and shelter and money. And you're like, wait a minute. Why do I got to provide for him? I don't even want him here. People had to be mad about that. Of course. And then there was things such as a, a shipping, trading. They would go out and people for years, generations would be shipping and making their wares and, and their things that they do, their businesses, and King George or Lord Germain or another wanted a, a big chunk of their fortune for themselves, and they didn't care what the colonists want. So that just led to one thing after the other. And then, of course, after that, you know that General Lord Howe uh, was sent, William Howe, uh, was very close with Lord Germain and Lord North, and he was under direct orders to literally how should I say it, so, um, to wrestle control from the colonist civil authorities. They felt that military jurisdiction was necessary at this point, and that was absolutely and totally incorrect and, ops- and, and, and insane, which always so, made things I- more. And then you had British soldiers that felt when they got there that, that they had become conquering people. And, you know, where's a peaceful a country and you have soldiers all of a sudden come in telling you we're in charge now you got to pay us feed us and do what we tell you and you're like oh, well sir quite frankly i don't understand that why would i have to even need you the french and indian war had ended we had fought in that nobody wanted to have another war we've been enough wars with the native americans at the time so you see there was so a Mary, they weren't. They were actually called the Native inhabitants at that time, not Native Americans as they are now. But nonetheless, sir, they were. All this added up to a lot of troubles where soldiers were arresting people because they weren't paying a tax they didn't even owe. Then they started telling them what they could not publish in their their gazettes and their newspapers. Then after that, they were telling us that you couldn't build that shipping shipyard for your private. Trading post, that's going to be for the British, His Majesty's Navy. So you see how this occurred. And then, of course, go this. It started partly when the British started going up towards the colony of Maine, which at that time was not a state. It was part of Quebec, uh, part of Canada. And uh, mm-hmm. they had turned out that they went up there to the colonists up there, and they decided that they were going to steal the timber for free to make masks for British ships. I was one of the those. The British were going to just go, they were just going to requisition the timber for nothing? Right. Whatever they wanted. And they, they did it to my father's shipping and I. 
So you see, really personal here. You know, I've never really looked at it this way, but it, it seems so clear now because it doesn't seem like this revolution was really even brewing. I mean, nobody's, you're never going to keep everybody happy all the time. It sounds to me like the British created the revolution that, that stole the Americas from them. I would have to say yes, sir, that would be uh, most appropriate um, because of the facts uh, that they are, how should I say it quite clearly, they, they felt that we were, of course, the children and that we would just be told what to do and that would be that. But you see, the children grew up. <laughs> As they, they always started, do. You know, instead of playing with sticks, they started playing with swords. And then by the time they got playing with swords, they started playing with firelocks. So you see, uh-huh. as the time rose on, you people start saying, wait a minute, this has gone too far. So you say, what are we going to do? Well, we have representatives from Philadelphia. We have rep in Boston. We have representatives from the colony of New York sending their correspondence to the Lord Germain Parliament, Lord North, His Majesty King George III. And, of course, the whole thing... Uh, should have been easily, you know, maneuvered. Dr. Franklin himself went over there many, many times to try and rectify a lot of the bad. And sometimes he got good, but he also wrote back that by 1774, the English, especially Lord North, really didn't want to have much to do with trying to solve the problem. He they just, just wanted, wanted to say, shut up and listen. Right. They, wanted, they told the colonists to kind of, uh, how should I say it, Bend over and accept the lane of fire. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my gosh. When you moved, I know you eventually moved to London and lived there. You're in London right now, aren't you? Yes, sir. I'm in London on Woodbury Street where I've been living. um, And I haven't been all that well. I have gout and and, and wear wounds on my, my left leg since 1777, which would be an interesting, how you could see how I've suffered over the years. Yeah, I want to ask you about your leg. Hold, hold, hold that for a second, because I know that your leg has not had the best of luck. You seem to dodge most of the bullets, but your leg seems to get hit by all of them. Um, <laughs> yes, they did, many times. <laughs> I wanted to ask you about, when you talk about Lord Germain and Lord North, and they're looking at the British Americans as children, as you said, or subjects. Would they Lower subjects. Lower subjects, lower subjects. Would they have treated the British citizens the same way? When you, being in London, is that what it looked like in London? Was it similar? Yes, sir, it was. As a matter of fact, in the, if I recall from my recollections, I'm writing my memoirs for Peggy, my wife, to uh, use in, in, in the future. Um, what happened in 1780 was known as the Londonbury Riots, which did take place over here in, in London, and... Um, it was very. It was a bloody, uh, a bloody affair, sir. Um, bloody, bloody affair. And uh, the people in, in in England were also suffering from the war. They, the the food that was going to the British Navy and British Army and their Hessian allies to the colonies. You have to understand they were making their own people suffer too. And they little is known of this, but there was an amazing riot here in London in 17 June. June 8th of 1780, I believe it was, and that was at the same time when I was dealing with what was happening to me and, and the American forces under General George Washington. There was so what a, can you uh, tell me about the riot? Well, I'll tell you about them right now. There, the riots were hundreds of people that were going to the holding place, kind of like a depot for food and, and things, and they were just taking all the extra and most of the normal use food and clothing and, and amio and, 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 and actually was taking people's silver and gold and their buckles and, and they're turning them to bullets to go shoot at, the, at us, the colonists at the time. And you're like, wait a minute, why, what, what, what is going on over there in London? And you figure it out and you say, you know, it's very funny because uh, they were starting to shoot their own British soldiers and they wanted to attack the parliament to make their rights wrong. Do you see the comparison here? Oh, most definitely. But you see, you hear little about that in history. Yeah, I mean, you certainly don't. You don't hear about it all the time. No, just like 
being called a dirty traitor. Well, um, you know, there are other ones besides me that actually joined His Excellency George Washington, believe it or not, in his army. And they were two British, very high-ranking British officers that did exactly what I was accused of. Well, you say their names. Are you a traitor? Do you consider yourself a traitor? No, sir, I do not. I believe that I had made a mistake, and I think I made a jump, a wrong jump. Maybe I was a little too fast. But I have to admit that at the time of the opportunity, by 1780, the same time of June, the colonies and colonists were, were starving to death. We were losing everything in the South. We lost Charleston, Camden, Virginia, everything. Lord, His Majesty Lord Cornwallis, the British forces, very close to Lord North, and of course the King of uh, England, King George, had completely conquered the South. And, and the Loyalist forces were not treated very well as I was trying to raise them so they could. And then if they had treated the Loyalist soldiers better, I think they would have won and they would have kept the control of the southern colonies, and I believe that the southern, the loyalists would have come by the, the thousands to help support the British government to make, put an end to this war. By oh, if seven, the British had treated them better. Oh, of course. They treated, I, you as oh. you know, sir, when you get into what I was, I was in com- brigadier commander of all loyalist forces in North America. Under, especially I had such people as bloody Bannister Tarleton under my command. One of the most barbaric men I've ever known in, in, in warfare. And, of course, we had people like No Flynn Gray and another gentleman that, that only used bayonets. But those are other stories. But the thing is, is we could have controlled, and the revolutionary, the American War of Independence was not exactly what people say it was. Everybody thinks is there were blue coats and red coats. Well, that's not quite true. <laughs> it was between the people mainly the loyalists and the patriots of this country. So, yeah, I would have to say it would be kind of called the first uh, civil war. When I was given command of West Point by General, His Excellency General George Washington, who I admired as a father figure, I loved the man. And I asked him for help on being caused and people calling me wrongful names and charging with different things. And I've requested that while I was the uh, war governor of Philadelphia, where I met my wife, Peggy Chippen, that I had an opportunity to try to help my, my forces. I took the money out of my own pocket, my own trading and my business to feed, support, and equip the American armies that were with me. Everybody said that they were trying to say that I was um, trying to be a criminal about it, and that's not true. I had all the documents to prove it. I sent them to Congress. Did you I do asked, that voluntarily or under the request of uh, General Washington? Uh, I gave everything. Other uh, General Washington told him what was going on, and this man called Abram Green, I think he was a Pennsylvania delegate, was an absolute. He seemed more to me like a, a, a more. I would think he. I thought him more as a loyalist, and I would think he was a, any kind of a patriot, personally, sir. But but uh, he went ahead, and I finally requested General His Excellency George Washington to acquire and give me my day in a court martial. Now, court-martials are not always what they seem to be bad. They are a way of clearing your name. And if, I, if George Washington loved me the way he said as a son, I would have helped, thought he would have helped me to acquire some assistance in defense against these people and the Congress because I spent hundreds of thousands of dollars of my own money to equip. Then when I asked them for not only the money that was owed to me for my commander's general, I was never awarded anything for my victories. I can give you the list of those, uh, which are quite being and, and George Washington and His Excellency said that he felt that if he were to pass or be killed in line on the field of battle, that he would wanted uh, his, his best general, uh, General Benny Darnold, to take command of the American armies. This is true. And there's no question, there's no question that George Washington viewed you, although I, I think that you don't agree with the decisions he made later were not standing up for you. There's no question that uh, General Washington absolutely looked at your skill set on the battlefield and had to think that you were his number one guy. And yet you didn't get that kind of recognition from him, did you? No, sir. If you recall, if you recall in my past stories of history, 
you would uh, record the Battle of Saratoga in the Definitely. Congo. You might recall the Battle the Battle of Richfield, or known as the Danbury Raid in 1777 in uh, Connecticut. You may recall in July of 1776 the Battle of Belcour Island, where I pushed the British Navy ships back to Canada to stop an invasion before the winter, which gave Washington time to to regroup and, and, and reorganize. The Battle of, of Saratoga, General Nathaniel Gates, who I will use correct wording for him, he was not of my sire. He was not the, he did not like me and I did not like him. He was a uh, blasphemous. He lied. He took credit for the battle that I won because he refused to want me to get out of my tent to help lead the, and, and take over the Bolkos readout where I was shot for the second time in my left leg, and the horse fell on top of me, and if I hadn't had a loaded firelock with me, the uh, British grenadier would run me through with his bayonet. That was uh, all, that was his first, second time. The first time uh, was in April of 1777, during the Danbury Raid and Rich, the Battle of Richfield with General Wooster. General Wooster was killed in action. I took command of the forces, the Connecticut militia, and I pushed the British back to the coast of Connecticut. I was shot there, too, in the leg. It shattered my knee. Was it always the same leg? Yes, sir. It's always been the left leg. The only difference is in the Battle of Richfield, the horse fell on top of me after the bullet went through. My horse was killed. And I was stuck I don't know if they have have, uh, magnets in your time, but there's... In our time, there's something called a magnet, and it attracts metal. And I'm thinking you may have a magnet in your leg somewhere. (laughs) Um... I wouldn't be surprised, sir, because uh, Dr. Franklin was known for inventing all kinds of wonderful medical apparatuses. He did not work on my leg, but I do know that the doctor in the field, when he saw my leg at Saratoga, he said that it was badly shattered, and I turned around and I told my sergeant, told him, I said, sergeant, and I told the doctor, no one's taking that leg off. And he says, you do what you have to do to fit Benny. He said, I don't have time. He says, he says, he says Sergeant, I told my sergeant, said, if he t- commenced to try to amputate my leg after I'm unconscious, you're to shoot him on the site. To shoot him right in the head. Wow. That's Interesting. true, sir. Didn't cut my leg off, sir. <laughs> yeah, I can understand that. I, I understand that when you, the third time when you're, either the second or the third time when your leg was injured, that you didn't take the time to let it heal properly and so it and that's why you're in pain right now because I know you'd said that you're in tremendous pain right now I also understand that you're not able to sail anymore with that leg is that correct that's correct sir I don't have a sailor's leg anymore it is it, it's the pain there's gout rheumatism it, it's swelling it I have to work on a cane virtually all the time I have to keep my leg up a lot after I was wounded at Saratoga, that was what George Washington has actually wanted me to do no more combat tours throughout who I healed, and he sent me to become the war governor of Philadelphia because we took it back from the British. So from 1770 and late 1777 to, I would say, late 1778, I was the royal, I was the governor, I was the uh, military governor of Pennsylvania and Philadelphia at the time, and that's what he wanted me to try healing. At that time, I was trying to get recognition from my commands to, to get some kind of notification and that I, I actually was very significant in the Battle of Saratoga. And, of course, Nathaniel Gates took all the honors for it. He did nothing but sit in his tent and ordered me to stay in the tent. But, sorry, I was not as a, I'm a soldier. I, do not, I, I had to refuse his command regardless of the circumstances because we were going to lose that battle. And thank God Almighty we did. The French, uh, the Franco-French army came in a year later, and that kind of saved uh, the army for a couple of years. But then, of course, as 1780 came on, I was trying, I was being constantly, constantly battered by uh, Congress. I've written Congress for my promotions, my, my uh, honors, and nothing was given to me. I was completely ignored. My, my Why support. is that? I do not know, sir. I, I begged my, the fatherliness of Exactly, George Washington. He said, "I love you like a son. I'm going to do what I can." But he said, "I don't want you to. You know, I got to go. I'm going to give you the a 
command of a very big fortification in, in the colony in York, which turned out to be West Point. And I didn't want that. I, uh, I wanted a battlefield command, and I wanted to continue that. And I kept getting pushed to the side, you know, into the pens. I said, well, why don't you sit in that pen there and, and just rest a little bit more? That, that didn't fit your personality at all, it doesn't sound like. No, it didn't. It was, it was, it was, not, it was not good. And, and then Gates, you know, getting all the credit for the, the big, one of the biggest victories is 1777, which I never claimed full victory, but I'll tell you the people... The soldiers, when they saw with my shattered leg that I still made a charge with my horse onto Bolkor's Redux, and we pushed the German Hessian troops right back where they came from, and Gates just sat there and did absolutely nothing, they would not listen to him. All the soldiers, when they, he said, I'm going to court-martial Benedict Arnold, I'm going, to, I'm going to have him arrested, and the soldiers went to Gates' tent, and then they told him, sir, we're not taking any other commands from you unless Benedict Arnold is in direct command with us. Is it true that at the end of that battle that you, am I thinking of the right battle that you and Gates were, were seen screaming at one another? Yes, sir. It was a very unmilitary professional of me, but I, I had to say that it was, it, was, it was warranted. It had to be Mr. Gates, he not worthy of the title of general of any army. As a matter of fact, I don't think he could have been an army of swine at the time. Is he lazy or is he not strategic? What was Gates' situation? A little of everything, sir. Gates was half-witted. He was not knowledgeable. He had really no military offensive or strategicness in him. He, quite frankly, sir, uh, uh, he wasn't even on the battlefield much. And if he was, he was way in the back. He never led anybody to victory. Yeah, that's why they sent him back to the southern colonies after that, because he wasn't really popular up north anymore. Led from the rear, huh? Yes, sir. Well, he was from Rhode Island with uh, Nathaniel Green, and Nathaniel Green knew him, and a general Nathaniel Green, sir, but he was a great man, great officer. Um, but even he said that uh, Gates wasn't worthy of pulling a plow on his field. Oh, man. That's about, that's about, that's about as mean as you can be to somebody, I'm guessing, in your time. <laughs> He was, yeah. he was, how should I say, sir, he, he, was not, uh, he, he was not worthy of the rank he obtained. His proficiency, his honesty was, was so lacking. One of the questions that I, I wanted to ask you about the court-martial is, when, when you were court-martialed, that was in 1779, and you had said that, you know, we look at that as some sort of disciplinary process, but you had said that that is also something to clear a person's name. Well, my understanding is you were court-martialed in 1779, and then the next year in 1779, and the next year in 1780, that's when you became the commander of West Point. And I was always wondering, because why would they court-martial somebody and then make them the commander of West Point? And now what you're saying clears that up a little bit, because the court-martial isn't, like, you know, going to court and you go to jail or something like that, it's, it's more of trying to figure out, like, clear up your reputation, as you were saying. And so what happened during that court-martial? That's a very good question. I, I'm, I, I'm glad you asked that. I uh, had approached His Excellency General George Washington, my ultimate commander, and, and, and told him that I wanted a battlefield command, and I wanted that, com- that court-martial to go ahead and get back into the field. Now, what had happened was that His Majesty George Washington, he had told me that he felt that, I think, this is how I believe it went, he wanted to save me the face of what you were going to the court because he knew I was telling the truth. He didn't want it. He felt, I'll just put you, take you away from those that are trying to uh, shun you and make you look bad, if you like to say, or uh, put you into the mud. And I will put you in ultimate command of one of the most important military facilities in the United States on our defense. The thing was that uh, he felt that, I honestly feel he did it to get me out of the way. It was more, yes, it was a good thing, but it was a bad thing because he was kind of hiding me. And I didn't like that. I, was very, I felt very uh, upset with that. And I decided as, as his general... You know, I approached them about, I wanted to be a brigadier general, but they only gave me major general. And I was like, wait a minute, uh, I should have been that years ago. Why am I not giving that position? 
he says, I'm giving you the full command of West Point, making me think that this was quite the deal. In actuality, sir, it was not much of a bastion. It looked bigger than it was. But the British knew, His Majesty knew, that this would be a perfect place to split the colony for the, in, in three pieces. What I mean by, in 1777, when I was at the Battle of Saratoga, that was the first plan of Burgoyne, uh, Sir Clinton, and Sir Leger. But Leger was stopped in a risk in a very bloody battle. that They couldn't go any further. Um, Clinton lied and failed to stay in New York City. He felt that he needed to defend New York and not come up to defend Burgoyne. And then Burgoyne came from Canada, gentleman, uh, John, General uh, John Burgoyne. And, of course, you know he was defeated at Saratoga by part of my actions at the Bolkers Redoubt. But the thing was that that was given to me. At first, I thought it was incomplete trust, but the reality was that I was being hidden away, and George Washington did not want to face the other opportunist officers, or he didn't want to go over Congress or somebody like that, which I always felt that was wrong what he did. He was highly respected by the Continental Congress. He could have made this happen. All he had to do was write Benjamin, uh, Sir Benjamin Franklin, Dr. Ben Franklin, tell him, look, this is what I'm going through. Benjamin Franklin himself, Dr. Franklin, knew of my, my, my tries and, and tribbles. And he said that he, would, he thought that George Washington should try to help talk to the Congress. And when he talked to the Congress, they kind of gave him a kind of a... Like, well, we don't really want to deal with uh, Benny DeDonald, but, you know, maybe if you push a little, tell us a letter a little bit more, maybe we'll see through that. But you see, the problem was, sir, that he didn't do it. He didn't step forward for me like he should have. So, General Washington did not step forward. No, sir. So, you, you know, you talk about him being disappointed in me after the, the West Point debacle, as you say, it or disaster. How do you think I felt being Benny Darnold under his command and not being able to, to get my commander to stand up for me when he knew that I was highly respectful and I was highly well-valored. I never, I never ran in a fight. Why would you leave me hanging like this? You see, you think, if you look at my point of view, I feel like, like he really wronged me. Whether it was intentional or not, he still did. As you describe it, it seems very clear. You're clearly extraordinary on the battlefield, and you're able to lead men. And I understand that there was a, a time when you rode into Valley Forge and the men cheered. Clearly able to lead men. You win the big battles. You are certainly not afraid of dying for your cause. And the Congress doesn't stand up for you. They don't give you the recognition for your military honors. And then the leader of, the, of, our, of our nation, General Washington, also doesn't stand up for you. And for some reason, and then tries to hide you away at West Point, you're saying, it, it makes more sense how a person like yourself could just be fed up with it and say, all right, fine, if, if you don't want me, then I'll go to the other side. I mean, is that, is that what it is? Yes, sir, you're, you're, you're getting close to the, 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 the point I would like to make. Uh, is that, sir, I was not trying... The honest truth is, sir, is when we get into what happened at West Point, let me first say this. As you know, when you ask General George Washington and you say, sir, look, I, I want to be in a battle. You know I can do this. You trust me for this. Then why won't you put me in a battle of command? Well, after a while, he starts hinting that they really don't want anybody doesn't want to want to serve with me or command. And that's, that just was not true. There were some generals, yes, but there were a whole bunch of others that wanted me, but they wouldn't, uh, George Washington didn't apply himself to do that. And so when I asked him personally, he uh, write him, or he told me very nicely like a son to his father, and he, says, he said, no, Benedict, I need you there. That's a very vital place. This could, be, this could be the whole, the British could attack that just to split the colonies up like they had tried three years ago. And you look at them and you say, you look at them like you, you try to believe that's true, but it's not. There's nothing really here. There was cannon, we have a few cannons, we have some bastion walls, a few, you know, a few hundred troops up here, maybe a thousand 
but they're mostly militia, and they either have not seen much combat or very little of it. If this was to be attacked, we would probably be in an insanity amount of trouble. So, but the point was, the main reason and how it began was that there was a Peggy shipping my wife. Her father was a, a very high Justice Magistrate loyalist in Philadelphia. That's how I met his daughter. We got married. His name Edward? He was a yes. judge, I think? Yes. He was a judge. Of mm-hmm. His Majesty's a Royal uh, Justice. And they were very wealthy. I met Peggy and we got married. But you see, Peggy, by 1780, she had confided with me and we sat down many nights and days talking about how or why would George Washington let me hang like this. And then she used to know Major John Andre, better known as the adjutant general to America and also the cousin to um, uh, the Queen of England at that time. And she thought that maybe there was a way that they can end this. Now, here's the thing. Ending what? The war. Peggy was on me talking many, many times, and we discussed this while I was trying to relinquish and get my satisfaction from his Excellency George Washington. I was trying very hard to maintain some kind of sanity to what I was going through. And at that point, my wife, Peggy Shippen, had told me, she said, look, why don't we at least try? Why don't you see the American Congress is treating you so badly? Your own friend, George Washington, who's supposed to be a father to you, he says he won't do anything for you. She says, look, the American war is going badly. And she was correct. By June of 1780, we were very in dark side. Washington was losing everything. No major victories at all. They just, they're going through these terrible winters, 1779 to 1780 in Valley Forge, Morristown, what do you call down in Connecticut, uh, Putnam's encampment down there in Reading, mm-hmm. I believe it was. And all the soldiers were suffering and dying. For what? My cue was, we're not going to win this war with England. There's no way we're going to win this war with England. So I, but I still believed in George Washington and the Amer- in, in our way of life, and I didn't want to subject ourselves to doing something different. But I never said, and I will repeat this another time, I never told anybody that I was for the Declaration of Independence. I wasn't against it, but I didn't fight for that. I fought for making the king of England to make the wrongs right. I want that very clear in history. Nobody seems to understand that. And so, by June of 1780, sir, we had major defeats. They called it the dark year of the revolution. And American soldiers, and I mean very famous officers, were now deserting and going to join the English in uh, New York because, A, sir, they could be fed, two, they would be paid, and three, they would have something to go back to when the war was over. So if the because British, if they had remained, remained Americans fighting, they were going to lose because the Americans were going to lose. Correct. And it looked like by 1780, especially by June of 1780, it was pretty well over. Even the, the, the Franco, the French troops were not really, they didn't send all that many. They sent maybe... 10,000 troops, and really, this is, there were three more years of conflict with England, and I know that because I was in there at that point. And finally, I tried several times. I got tried to get Sir Henry Lee. Now, that's another one that you could call a traitor if you like, sir. He was also in the British Army, and he joined George Washington. He, he was, like, mesmerized, adored him to no end and wanted to serve with them. So at the Battle of Monmouth, that was the famous name you heard, which is Sir Henry Lynn. He said that he was going to fight for Washington, but the Battle of Monmouth, he had a relative, no, Light Horse Harry Lee, that was a cousin of his on the, that wasn't a, a colonist. And he joined the fort then, but he kind of cowered without at the Battle of Monmouth, but he still served with George Washington, one of his, uh, one of his special adjutants, and so did Lord Stirling. Uh, who ran from the British Army in October of 1776, 
to join Washington's troops. Now, why are they not called traitors? And they sure were. I'm, and I was called a traitor because I never said that I was there for America. I was trying again to wrong the rights. Now, and he had to get to the long, the long part of it. At that point, Peggy Shippen had finally had contact with Major John Andre. Now, Major John Andre, I met him in Philadelphia shortly before the British evacuated. I was one of the officers that was meant to go in and meet with the British to, how should I say it, sir, help them exit the city. So I had to meet with their authority commanders, and that's how I met Major Andre. Oh, is it true that you met Andre through Benjamin Franklin's son, William? Yes, because William Franklin was the governor, the royal governor of New Jersey at the time. He wasn't very long because they imprisoned him here in Litchfield, uh, in, in, I believe in Litchfield, Connecticut, um, during the war, 1776, I believe. And they kept him there for a year until he was exchanged with somebody... And then he went to England where he passed away, and not too far from where I am. But that was uh, true, yes. Major Andre then was set up through Peggy, through letters and other people, and they transmitted. The British had finally were talking, and they said, look, we'd like to end the war like you do. Want to save your American lives? Want to save British lives? At that point, people were saying, well, well, was his uh, General Benny Donald, was he trying to, you know, just betray or save? I said, well, the truth is I was trying to save lives because I also knew that this war was going to just go on and on and, and more deaths, with needless deaths, loss of money, loss of property was just going to continue. And George Washington didn't seem like he was uh, thinking any better of the situation. So I wrote, so finally correspondence arrived me from the HMS Vulture, in September, uh, around 20th of 1780, I was in my headquarters at West Point when it arrived. I read the uh, actual documents, and it was here by a, a letter from the uh, British commander, George Clinton, down there. Lord Clinton, I should say. And he wanted to know if I would be willing to discuss uh, a possibility of ending this war sooner. Now, my condition was, well, did you contact... General Washington and the Congress. He said, yes, and they don't want to, they want nothing to do with it. He said, so he said he figured that maybe if we could get you or somebody to maybe consider uh, turning over the, the bastion of fortification of West Point, we could end this war. Because once the war, His Majesty the King uh, had taken over control of West Point, the whole colonies would have been split in half. George Washington would not be able to engage any bigger British home numbers there wouldn't be enough American forces up in the Northeast to stop it. So, and it so that been, actually could have ended the war. That would have, yes, it actually could have ended the war. And I was thinking rationally how um, this war has gone on, and I, I really wanted to save lives. And uh, people never really listened to what I was trying to say. Well, and, I'm listening, uh, and I, I want to be clear on this. So Lord Clinton, who is a British lord, well, there wouldn't have been any American lords, his pitch to you is we not we want you on this side it's that we need to end this war and that's why he's calling you to duty and it makes complete sense why you would say yes to that if that's what he's saying because that's all you're trying to do you don't want to slaughter americans or british because you're both you just want the war to end is that correct correct sir and that was one of the biggest things that i've written my memoirs i told people about that and my wife peggy tried to make it clear i even tried to wash, uh, write his majesty george washington uh, some years after he became what became uh, your the first president of the united states and he received my letter but he never answered me back and i told him how horrible i felt about what had happened and but you see in June of seven, in September of 1780, it was very clear to me, very very clear to me, that ne neither the the Continental Congress was going to ever acknowledge my services properly. They were not going to pay me any of the money that they would do me because they weren't paying anybody. They were basically, in my view, putting a lot of it in their own pockets when they had it. The rest of the time, they didn't have any money. I just don't even know how this war was being run, other than from chivalry and criminalism, but the thing was that George Washington 
I had finally, I said, well, I told the British, look, I don't want to be a traitor to my country, but my country has always been England. I never said that I wanted to be a free and republican United States, although I was feeling that I wanted to serve the country that I live in, whether it be British or the colonies or New, Eng- or, or New, New England. My whole purpose, sir, was that I wanted to just... Like everybody else, we wanted to stay under the crown. Let's just stop this nonsense. This war is ridiculous. People have died for nothing. And families are destroyed. I mean, families who were friends two weeks before the independence was signed now are enemies. They'll hang each other. It's just ludicrous. So what I'm now saying is, at this point, I made a, I wrote back, I, I finally, under a flag of truce, which is accepted by both forces, I went ahead and, and said I sent a messenger a regular army officer, and uh, that would take the message from me to the headquarters of Sir Clinton. By, however, I had stipulations in it. Number one, that uh, you are uh, you are not to take my officer prisoner, whether he's well known to you or not. And he goes, no, they wouldn't do that. What they did is they actually sent me one of their officers to correspond me that we would keep in case of a hostage situation. But at that point, mm-hmm. everybody was very honorable. Everything was very honorable. He came over. I said, no, you stay in your boat. I would trust you on this. And they did, and they said they found that very very uh, honorable that I would not take their hostages. The same aspect, they treated my uh, messenger with a complete uh, honor and respect. They fed him, they dined him, and they returned him within 24 hours to the boat back to his location here up in uh, West Point or Havistraw Landing. So at that point... Um, within a few days, I had another letter from His Excellency, Sir Clinton, and what he asked me was, would, if I would turn over the plans and everything to West Point, that we could swiftly take control of the thing with minimal bloodshed, maybe none at all. He understood that I wanted. I said, I'm not getting the money that was given to me for my rank for the years of service here, and he said they offered to give me 10,000 pounds, which was equivalent of what I had already lost through this war. And they also offered me that would give me a brigadier general position in command of British forces. And then, of course, after the war, I would be given my homes or, or whatever, you know, land, grant, whatever I was offered by His Majesty the King after the war was over. Or if something went wrong, I would be offered land and respect in England the king and all these other things so here's an honorable letter coming what I thought was to be an honorable man so I roused this around for about two weeks in my head I guess I should say and then finally I made the the offer that that there was a terrible disaster that Washington could have prevented in 1780 the Camden battle Camden South Carolina Charleston South Carolina all went down in a matter of a week Thousands of Americans were killed or killed by British, and they had taken control of the two biggest ports. The only other port in the East Coast at that time would have been New London or New York, New York, Connecticut, New York, New York State. So we decided at that point that I want to put an end to this. The, the terms seem fair, and I started committing and planning what turned out to be what everybody calls me. At dastardly act. Let's pause there for a minute, because before we go into the dastardly act, when I asked you earlier if you see yourself as a traitor, I'm thinking that you would put a different label on yourself that wouldn't be traitor. The label would be patriot. That's how you would describe yourself, wouldn't you? Am I right? I would, I'm, not, I, I'm, not, um, I'm not inhumane where I make mistakes. I know I did. But no, I do not consider myself a traitor. As anything else, sir, I was thinking that I was actually, like you said, a very a patriot. I was just trying to save my country from any more dissolution, destruction, all of that. And also... Good. Let, me ask you, let me ask you some questions on that specifically. Now, when I ask these questions, since I've been talking to you, my perception of your history is completely different. And so when I ask some of these questions, they may sound defensive, but I'm, I am just looking for clarity because I appreciate your candor and it's, I'm hearing what you're saying. It's so much clearer 
than what I've been told in my history books when I went to school. So my question is this. I hear, and a lot of your actions lead me to believe that you are looking for a way to end this, to right the wrongs. But then there are two situations that confuse me, and that is when you were talking with Andre and Clinton about getting the information about West Point to them so that they could take over the fort, my understanding is you asked for a significant amount of money. Um, And if you're trying to end the war... Go ahead, go ahead. No, no, please go on. I'll I'll let you go. Yes, it's very hard to answer, but I'm going to answer it as honestly as I can. Yes, I did request a certain amount of money, not to sell the plants. Uh, I want to correct that. I wanted that for the money that I was owed by the Continental Congress and my military serving. In other words, uh, if you were a landlord, the old landlord of a property, correct? And you have committed put a some kind of substantial cash or deposit on it, let's say. And then you say, well, after so many years, we give you a certain amount of percentage of interest because of what you did. And then you say, very good. And you turn around and they don't give it to you. And you know it's owed to you. You've asked the Continental Congress. You've asked George Washington to do this. There's nothing unusual to be asked for. That's how much of my own family's money I have put into this war. And not besides, I asked them, George Washington was getting paid using his money. Other Other officers were getting paid, but not the enlisted men weren't getting, not always paid. So, in other words, so you come up to me and after, you know, nearly, what do you say, uh, five or six years of war, I haven't gotten a penny, but I've given everything I had to make this war. I know there's sacrifices. You're just trying to be whole again. Right. You make sacrifices. We all knew that. But there's at a point when you start realizing, wait a minute, I'm serving and doing something that means you should be reimbursing me, compensating me for the risks, for the loss of my property or the loss of of my swords or something of that nature. A horse is shot down and and killed or slain in in an event. Okay, I was asking if they would be willing to give me the monies up to date as serving as a thing. And they respected me for that. They told me, yes, they would. And that was part of why I felt that I was going to be paid to be a commander for what I still thought was my country. I still thought I was still an Englishman, an Englishman patriot. And so I, understand. So I, I have to say at that point, well, what is your definition, sir, of what you think was right? Everybody's reasoning behind it is different. Uh, most of the people I know of the Content Congress, all the monies that they were getting, gold or whatever you want to call it, why would they be offering such things as flipping money or, or phony money, continental dollars, which are absolutely worthless. They were giving these to the soldiers, so even after the war, none of them could use any of it. But what about the, promised, the promises of, of property for serving your country? They didn't get that. So you see, sir, I felt the best way to get back to normal was to end this war. So I asked it, and I asked and I also requested an equivalent of rank with the British forces. And I asked them if that was acceptable. Could they offer to do that? Then my other offer was, can we, could we try to, if we did even consider this, would they be willing to do two things? One thing most people don't know is that I wanted them to come in at night and know to sur- that the thing would be taken without any bloodshed. And Clinton and his British forces were fully for that. They could have, what they would have done is they would have immediately taken the fort and then they would have immediately paroled all the soldiers and told them you can either join the British Army or you can go home. Oh, you're talking about West Point. Okay. So they're saying they're going to come into the fort, no bloodshed, say, hey, guys, come, come, back, come, back, come back to your mother and everything will be okay. Basically, and it was supposedly all guaranteed. Of course, the British didn't hold a few of the guarantees, right? So I got... Uh, British government kind of, um, how should I say, uh, a very unkind thing. I will get into that. But, um, you know, here you're talking 
about a very honorable man. Now, he was willing to make keep honorable. Clinton was honorable to do that. Lord Howell, the British Admiral in charge of His Majesty's Navy, were also unagreeable to all this. He would have brought his Navy up the Hudson River and had their ships up and they tie them up to the West Point. They would have had their guns aimed at them just in case somebody tried something and they would not fire a shot. They would have been completely surrounded and then I would have told the men, look, we're giving this place up. And most of those men didn't even want to fight anymore. They just wanted to go home. Some of these guys had farms and families they hadn't seen in years and their children are growing, and I think I can understand why they were fed up with it. They were, they figured this war was going absolutely nowhere. George Washington. So is commands- that why? Is that why that? My understanding is that when you did take control of West Point, you were weakening the defenses, and is that why you you were doing that so that when the British came in, that there there wouldn't be a fight, so that there wouldn't be bloodshed? Is that? Am I connecting that properly? Um, at first, I, I did what I was commanded to do to fix it, but then I realized that later on, should there be, in other words, to start, you know, to make, to not come back on my word with my men and the British, because I was, I thought it was being respectful and honorable. I wanted them to know, look, and they kept asking me why I wouldn't make the defenses, and I told them, I said, we have enough defenses now in case we need it, but after this started, I got really in deep with this thing, and I realized that not everything I did was a correct decision to make. I admit that I made some really bad decisions. Who hasn't? I don't know any commander or person in this world has ever done yeah, or any something human, that he regretted. Sure. So that wasn't you, that. You didn't do that for that reason. Literally, yeah. this was just a bad decision of yours. This was a bad decision. This was a bad decision of mine. But my heart was totally in trying to end this war. I really did. It's hard to argue with what Arnold has said so far. He was a hard charger on the battlefield and delivered results. Yet, it appears that he did not get the recognition he deserved after risking so much while, as he said, trying to right the wrongs. One or two different decisions might have caused his label of traitor to later be that of founding father. But before we try to stretch it that far, he has to answer a question at the beginning of the next podcast. Why did you level your hometown after being given command of troops as a British general? That's going to be a tough one to explain. The incredible answer is in the next episode. Thanks for listening, and don't forget to subscribe and tell a friend about the Calling History Podcast.